Kareem pronounced Weiner and Wiener in both different directions. I think because comparing Wieners to Brownian motions is probably not something we should be doing on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. All right. Hello and welcome to the Crypto Basic Podcast. I'm here with Kareem Baruke today, and we are going to give you a 101 series on investment strategies. How you doing today, Kareem? I'm doing very well, but you didn't get a chance to introduce yourself, so I'll do it for you. I'm here with Brent Philbin, and he's going to have this conversation with me. Also, I do want to give a heads up to the audience. I, I have come down with a little bit of a cold, so if you hear a little sneezing or coughing or anything like that, or nasally, my fault. Sorry about that. So first thing I'm going to tell you, if this is the first 101 you've ever heard, our 101 series could be listened to in any order. Many of them are on coins. Some of them are on concepts, and today we're going to be talking about investment strategies. Now, originally, this started off as a pretty easy little episode, and I, we had this sitting in our Trello for something that we wanted to cover, and it was listed under dollar cost averaging, which is one very specific investment strategy that we definitely knew we wanted to talk about at some point. And Kareem suggested, hey, why don't we do that episode? You know, I'll, I'll handle the research end. I am now looking at an outline that is seven pages long. <laughs> we don't even get the dollar cost averaging until page five. Yeah. And <laughs> this so, is not the first time something like this has happened. <laughs> this is going to be a good episode, but I just I wanted to give you a little bit of a behind the scenes of how this goes down when, when Kareem takes the reins. Well, so, listen, so just to, just to explain myself, here's how it went down, you know. This is definitely one of those episodes. Longtime listeners will have heard me reference dollar cost averaging before. Uh, and it's a strategy that you and I both uh, believe in. We think it's a simple way to try to avoid timing the market, all that stuff. We'll go into more detail. But researching this episode was a very humbling experience. Number one, because I realized that I had a very simple but fundamental lack of understanding about where dollar cost averaging actually applies and where it doesn't. Like, the fact that I was using the term sometimes incorrectly. And then, of course, you go down the rabbit hole because anytime you start researching this, you find other stuff that you're like, oh, well, this is relevant. Oh, well, I got to provide some context. Oh, let me add this. And then by the time I look at my outline, it's just like this super disorganized mess of notes. And I'm like, oh, my God. So, yeah, the 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 title changed from dollar cost averaging to investment theories and strategies. So there's going to be there's going to be a lot here. I'm actually super excited because... I woke up this morning thinking I'm going to know most of what we're talking about in this episode. And then I just scrolled through it and I don't know anything. So it's going to be fun <laughs> to learn along with Kareem explaining this to me. So let's get to it. Let's get started. And the first thing we're going to talk about is a random walk hypothesis. And there, um, there's a lot of books written on this for sure. I imagine we're going to link some in the show notes. But Kareem, give us a the quickest version we can and still do it justice of the random walk hypothesis. Right. So most of these uh, theories are really relatively modern. And by that, I mean that they start in the like 20th century. Almost all of these come from the 1900s on, right? But the random walk hypothesis is looking at the fluctuation, the price movement of stocks. And it's a financial theory that basically says that 
the way stock prices move, it's like a random walk. So the original book that brought this forward was in 1973. It was a guy named Burton Malkiel, and he wrote A Random Walk Down Wall Street. And that book might sound familiar because it's pretty famous. Um, And it also popularized an important theory, which is the efficient market hypothesis. They go hand in hand, and we'll go into that in a little bit. But basically... A proponent of random walk theory believes that it's going to be impossible to outperform the market without taking additional risks because because the movement itself of prices is ultimately random and unpredictable. And because you can't predict it, there's no way to outperform it. So this is where the famous thought experiment, quote unquote, came where he said that a blindfolded monkey throwing darts at a newspaper's financial pages could select a portfolio that would do just as well as one that was carefully selected by experts. And of course, this was a big claim as if financial experts were offended. And in 1988, the Wall Street Journal actually did a test on this hypothesis. So they took a bunch of financial experts, mutual fund managers, things like that, and they took their staff and they they had their staff literally throw darts at a newspaper to select stocks and then see how they would perform. So out of 100 contests, the results, obviously this is not a large sample size, but I included it just for fun, just to get an idea. Out of the 100 contests, the experts won 61 versus the staff's randomly selected 39 Uh, portfolio selections. So it looks like the experts were much better than random chance, but only 51% of the experts' portfolios were able to beat the Dow Jones Industrial Average, which is basically 50%. Basically, half of them couldn't beat the average, which is more or less consistent with the idea that Everybody was just performing randomly. If you just have a random distribution, about half of the people will outperform, about half will underperform. And this is more or less what happened in this case. Yeah. So before I ask you any questions, I just realized it is good to get our disclaimer out of the way early in this episode, since we're talking about a lot of financial theory. We are not financial advisors at all. So we may make opinions or comments about these different investment strategies, We do not know. We are idiots. We are not actually versed enough in this to understand it. We are just kind of learning along with you about a lot of this stuff. And second, these are all talking about traditional financial markets. We were applying these in crypto, but there is not enough data so far necessarily to know that these things all apply because securities are a different animal. So I want to get that stuff out of the way here. Before we go forward, Brian, what a what a great, great, great disclaimer. First of all, as you already emphasized, and I want to emphasize again, this is just a general overview of you know basic research that that was done via Google and articles and things like that. You know, neither one of us has financial uh, like degree. We're not financial advisors, etc. So please, everything here is just a general overview of available literature, but also. The entire time I was thinking precisely that. How do some of these strategies or theories relate to the cryptocurrency market? And I really want to back up what you said in the sense that it's not just that you and I don't know, but I genuinely believe that right now nobody knows. There's no question that there's people that have a better idea, but we are seeing the development of a completely new asset class, the development of a new market, the new type of liquidity, uh, new type of intrinsic values, new type of everything. So 
Just like it took a long time for qualified experts to develop all these theories about the traditional stock market, I believe that it will take time and data in order for experts to look at those theories and look at the data that comes from cryptocurrency markets and develop maybe new or more uh, specific theories about how they relate to crypto. So 100% I'm with you on that disclaimer. All right. So now that we got that out of the way, Back on the random walk hypothesis, we're going to just back up a little bit. I know that was kind of jarring in, in there, yeah. <laughs> but just the results of that 100-person study, 61 experts, one versus 39 randoms, one. Random darts, 39% of the time beat people who were supposed to be experts. So think about that whenever you're watching a YouTube channel or <laughs> listening to us. Like We or they may be no better than random chance. And 51 times out of 100 isn't even like a small deviation away from expected output on something completely random. 61 for 39 is not a deviation away. If this was something like 80-20, then we'd be saying, okay, that the experts are very clearly, you know, that's so many standard deviations away that there's no way that could be random. But keep that in mind. Brian, I have a question for you. This is totally tangential, but you know, since our backgrounds are both in poker, one of the things that I think about when I see this is it makes me feel like stock picking is less skill intensive as far as how much of an edge you can have than even, let's say, something like poker. Because if you could design, let's say you could design a machine that played a hand completely randomly, like every hand that it got, it just played randomly, like re-raising, folding, whatever, it would get crushed. Like it would have absolutely zero chance against a moderate, decent uh, strategy. And here, complete randomness is like semi-competitive. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We've mentioned this when we talk about poker and people who are very, very bad at poker who end up playing the game, they're better off playing a game like blackjack or a game like craps where the house is guaranteed to win in the long run because they're so much less likely to win at poker that they're actually better off with the 51% house edge and playing that way. And you would never see 39 random bots that didn't have any programming and just randomly did things beat 60 or it would never be 6139 no 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 just on something like that no it would just be a guaranteed trend to zero you know (laughs) yeah it would be it would be 98.2 or something like that or or 97.3 it would be very very different right all right so now that we've you mentioned a small piece of that big puzzle was efficient market hypothesis and i think you want to expand on that so i'm going to give you that opportunity now yeah, so you um, the efficient market hypothesis is a very big deal. And even though the theories have developed maybe past it, this is really like foundational. You know, it's almost like the theory of relativity in physics. You know, like there's a lot to the efficient market and a lot of theories have been based around it. So it was originally developed by Eugene Fama, who's a very famous American economist and he's still alive. And the idea is basically this. Markets are efficient and the prices reflect all known information and the prices also rapidly adjust to new information. So as far as the random walk hypothesis that we talked about uh, earlier, this is basically saying that since only new information 
uh, changes prices significantly. And new information is unknown until it occurs, and new information tends to occur at random. It therefore goes hand in hand with the random walk hypothesis, the efficient market. You know, like the developments are random because new information is presenting itself almost randomly. There's a couple of important assumptions to the efficient market hypothesis. Number one, it assumes that the information is widely available to all investors and that investors are going to use that information to make their trading decisions. It also assumes that most events that have major impacts like labor strikes or lawsuits um, are I don't want to say accidents because they have understandable causes, but again, they're kind of random and unpredictable. And it also assumes that investors react quickly to new information. You can't have new information hanging out there for a long period of time and the price not reacting to it. Otherwise, you wouldn't have an efficient market. Ultimately, the efficient market hypothesis feels that it should be impossible to outperform the overall market just through picking stocks in an expert way or timing the market properly. And it doesn't say that you can never outperform the market. This part is very important because I feel like even I sometimes used to have a hard time understanding this concept. The efficient market hypothesis is not saying that you can't outperform the market. It's simply saying that you cannot obtain higher returns without taking on additional risk. If you do take on additional risk, then obviously you're going to outperform the market. And if you're taking on less risk than the general market, then you will probably underperform. But in general, it's basically saying that you're not going to outperform the market by finding inefficiencies. You can only outperform the market by taking more and more risk. And of course, every investor has different risk tolerance. But there's a couple of problems or a couple of inconsistencies. One of them is if stock prices are just a result of the total sum of information about companies and it reflects, let's say, like a true value, because that's what uh, efficient market is saying. It's saying at any time when you see the price, that price reflects all the available information. It's pretty accurate to the real price. But if that's the case, why do we have bubbles? Why do we have these massive, massive fluctuations in asset class when the underlying asset itself isn't really changing? What Alan Greenspan used to refer to as uh, irrational exuberance. And then some people will say, okay, yeah, maybe the uneducated investor can be emotional, but the competent investors, the big players, they are not subject to that. And again, we have another example of that not being true in 2008. So you have rational actors. Now, let's think about the big institutional bankers, which I think it's fair to say, Brent, the big institutional bankers are the most competent investors. Is that like a general or the ones with the most tools, the most the ones with the whatever, right? Like you would expect. Go ahead. You would expect them to be for sure. You would you would expect those with the most information accessible to them to be the best to be the best investors. Now, there's obviously problems with that, especially where you have people who think they have all of that information and don't bother to seek out more and get better at what they're doing. But yeah, in theory, you would say that the big banks are correct. In theory, you can't get more well-informed investor than an investment company like Merrill Lynch or Bank of America or Citigroup or whatever. So one of the things that we look at, for example, in 2008 with the smart money, the banks, is they started buying a bunch of mortgage-backed securities and they considered those securities to be pretty safe. Now, those banks usually don't invest in real estate directly. They just buy the securities. So on the one hand, they were buying mortgage-backed securities from other banks. On the other hand, 
they were giving out bad loans to people who weren't credit worthy because they knew that they didn't have to get stuck with that mortgage. They could pack it up, all of the bad mortgages, into a bigger mortgage-backed security and sell it to a bunch of other banks. So on the one hand, they're buying shitty mortgage-backed securities, and on the other hand, they're making bad mortgages because they knew they could sell them. So eventually, some of these went broke, and they had to be bailed out because they took excessive risk. They clearly weren't smart money. They clearly weren't pricing assets properly. Now, you could make another argument, oh, well, maybe the people that were really in charge knew that they were going to get a bailout. So it was actually positive expected value to take unnecessary risk. Fine, we could play the loop. But the bottom line is that there were multiple points where the prices that were reflected uh, in the market were clearly not, quote unquote, efficient. That's a scam! (laughs) What a what an excellent use of the soundboard there, Brent. <laughs> That's all, Brent, guys. That I gotta give him credit for that one. So, and there there were other examples. So I just put one in here, but you know, this is academic. So one of the things that happens when a major research paper or a major theory gets put forward and it gets accepted, and why the sciences and, and the academic environment tends to be so interesting is people try to debunk it. So for example, Martin Weber is a leading researcher in behavioral finance. Behavioral finance is looking at the other side of it. Let's not look at people as rational, just computer-like programs. Let's look at the actual behavioral tendencies that they have in order to analyze markets. And he did a couple of studies to try to debunk efficient market hypothesis to an extent. So one of the tests that he did was that, for example, if you look at stock prices that outperformed the market during a five-year period, they tend to underperform the market in the following five-year period. And just the very fact that there's that trend would immediately put that asset not in an efficient hypothesis because somebody that was able to spot that pattern could, you know, on the second five-year period, short the stock or avoid it Mm -hmm. or whatever. So that's more or less a general overview of efficient market hypothesis and some of the maybe some of the weaknesses of efficient market there's another hypothesis that is a newer version of that but before we go into that i want to do one more little thing about the uh another explanation for the random walk hypothesis all right so before we get into that and, and we'll get into that in a second there were a couple things that you mentioned uh one was random events and i've mentioned this book on the podcast before but i think it's a really important piece we'll have a link in the show notes obviously a book by uh, a guy a guy named nasim talib is uh the black swan and <laughs> and kareem just like went off screen i assumed he was going to pee but he wasn't he went and grabbed the same book and showed it to me in the video <laughs> before you could finish the sentence <laughs> <laughs> but it is yeah it's an awesome book it's not it it's not an easy read it's there's a lot of information there to chew up and he's very poignant with his language, but it is in the end things like lawsuits, things like um, labor strikes. They are random, but we also tend to look back on them and think that we can predict them. So they, you got to understand what random events are, even if you look back and you think, "Oh, we should have seen that." Sometimes you should have seen it, like the like the mortgage crisis, but sometimes you couldn't. You know, I 
I have also mentioned this before, but I'm going to plug it one more time as an alternative. There will never be a 100% good alternative to actually reading a book so that you can get the entire argument that an author has laid out. So I don't want to make it seem like this is a good replacement. But there are some of you in the audience that just know that you will never actually buy the book and read the whole thing because of time, because of whatever. And I can't emphasize enough how awesome it is. Go on YouTube and find either a lecture or a debate by an author about a book that you like. Like in this case, if you go YouTube, Nicholas Nassim Talib, Black Swan, you can find a one hour or a one and a half hour talk where he's covering the major concepts. Maybe he's getting asked some questions. And a lot of time, it's a good way to get the major concept that somebody's discussing. And since it's visual and auditory, like you get, you understand it very well without necessarily having to dedicate the entire time to reading the book. So use that strategy. Honestly, it has served me really well. You know, I wish I had time to read more books. I wish I did more, but this, this is something that helps, you know? Absolute genius way of getting that. I also remember him being on the Freakonomics podcast at some point. Yeah, he's done a ton of media. I, he, he's he's a very interesting guy to listen to for sure. Actually, I'm pretty sure I don't remember. I'm pretty sure I saw a debate between Nassim Talib and Eugene Fama about the efficient market hypothesis. It might have been somebody else, but it's just like, and this was months ago. Now for this particular paper, so it's kind of perfect. All right. So we're, we're going to move on to that little thing that Kareem said he wanted to talk about before he wanted to talk about that other thing that combined a couple of things. A lot of, <laughs> lot of, lot of teasers lot of there. But, <laughs> but uh, Kareem, since I think this would, be, this would fall into your category, can you explain to us what Brownian motion is? Oh, and not your dancing. I see, what, uh, I see what you did there. Brownian because I'm brown. All right. <laughs> uh, it is Brent after all. <laughs> okay, so another explanation or a complementary explanation for the random walk hypothesis uses a concept that comes from physics, believe it or not, and it's called Brownian motion, as Brent mentioned. And no, it's not Brownian as in brown, uh, <laughs> although, so here's basically what happened. In 1827, there was a botanist named Robert Browning. He observed something very particular, which was pollen particles that were suspended in liquid had very erratic movements, like random shifts, and they didn't really understand it. It turns out that it was the water molecules that were hitting the pollen were distributed and moving around in a random way, which explained why the pollen being hit in all kinds of directions by water molecules was moving in random patterns. Now, this, these observations were put in a more mathematical context in the 1900s by a guy named uh, Louis Bachelier in relation to stocks, and then they were even further developed by Albert Einstein in 1905 in relation to thermodynamics. And then ultimately, they were finally put into a good like theoretical mathematical framework by a guy named Norbert Weiner, which is why they're sometimes considered the uh, Weiner process, this Brownian motion. So, okay, water molecules hitting pollen. How does that relate to the markets and their prices? Well, we can think of Brownian motion in relation to the movement of prices by the actual immediate supply and demand that exists at that very moment. So here's an example. Let's pretend that we have a company a stock or a cryptocurrency in our case, 
And let's say that there's no news about it, no news whatsoever, nothing new has happened, there's no developments, there's nothing that should change the price. And that morning, there's 100 buyers and 100 sellers that want to buy it. Here's the situation. At any given moment, just because of the realities of all of these people's lives, there's going to be a different amount of supply and demand. Maybe there's going to be 100 buyers and 100 sellers for the day, but maybe 30 of the buyers just happen to be in a different time zone. They wake up earlier. Maybe the buy or order start before. They can, even when news comes out, based on when people wake up or when people read their news or where people are, they're going to get their news at a different time. Also, each one of those individual investors based on their current situation, which is basically random, are going to have different available capital at that moment. It could be that somebody wants to buy the stock but can't buy more and this person just happens to have some extra cash flow. The bottom line here is that even in the absence of any information, even in the absence of the stuff that should theoretically move the price, the reality of the immediate supply and demand will fluctuate on all kinds of random factors, which is why Brownian motion helps explain how we see this stock price or asset price move up and down kind of randomly and zigzagging. And then it gets even more complicated when you have big movements because let's say that there are big news that change the price, right? Well, let's say that the price is dropping. Maybe some of maybe some investors which aren't even re- currently active have stop losses triggered. Those stop losses are going to activate like a zigzagging motion, which causes the price to go up and people are going to interpret that differently. Basically, the individual investors, they act as the water particles and the price acts as the pollen. So Brownian motion or the Weiner process explains how all of that randomness is hitting the price and making it move in different directions at all times. Wow. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot to kind of digest there. I mean, you can add so many different factors on top that are just these random little factors that could affect e- and think about it yourself. Think about the time the last time you bought a a crypto. What did you do before that? What what made you decide to buy where you bought or how you bought? Did you have extra bitcoin laying around and you were buying an altcoin? Did you go on Coinbase and buy with US dollars because you made $200 driving for Uber that week and you're only driving for Uber to create cryptocurrency. Whatever the case, like there's so many there's so many little ways that this can occur and no real way to explain that. So yeah, this is a this is a perfect randomness despite our pronunciation issues here. Uh for those of you that are wondering what Poland is, it is not a country, but pollen is the Oh, pollen. Uh, okay, I'm particles that come off of flowers. <laughs> And uh, and Kareem pronounced Weiner and Wiener in both different directions. I think because comparing Wieners to Brownian motions is probably not something we should be doing on this podcast. <laughs> yeah. Let's keep it with Weiner process and assume the guy's like German or something. Yeah. All right. So Weiner. Weiner. Oh, it's a, it's one of those. It's why I don't pronounce these names. Like I'm making yeah. fun of your pronunciations, but I can't pronounce a name for the life of me. So yeah, but uh, I have to speak English, otherwise I can't do anything in this country. So I gotta mispronounce <laughs> constantly. All right, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. All right. So past all of that, now that we understand there are a bazillion random things that can affect even a rational buying decision. Now you kind of are wanting to turn this all together for something that I've only very scratched the very surface of in my investment research. So I'm excited for you to present this to me, and that is the adaptive market hypothesis. So let's go. 
Yeah, I was super excited to learn about this as well. And it's very cool because it uses elements of one of my favorite theories, the theory of evolution, but as it applies to all kinds of things. I feel like, you know, evolution applies to so much more than just biology, and it's really cool to see it. But let's get back to basics. Sorry. So the adaptive market hypothesis was proposed by a gentleman named Andrew Lowe. And it is an attempt to reconcile the economic theories based on efficient market hypothesis with behavioral economics, as we mentioned afterwards, like the way that people act. And what it does is it applies the principles of evolution to financial interactions, competition, adaptation, and natural selection. Uh, Real quick before you get into this, uh, before you get into the real meat and bones of this, this is the marrying of the efficient market the the efficient market hypothesis and the behavioral finance is probably like a kind of like a holy grail because we know that both have to be true in some fashion because we know that we are subject to emotions when we do our own investing but at the same time we know how difficult it is to beat the market so it should be efficient so i i would you know i would subscribe to the efficient market hypothesis in most scenarios realizing that it trumps individual emotion at the time but i think we're going to learn some new information here that's going to help us move forward and marry these two for sure here and i'll give you a little bit of a teaser which i think that this the real aha moment that i had when i was reading about the adaptive market hypothesis is that we shouldn't think about efficiency as a yes no quality but as a spectrum uh and that there are circumstances in which markets can be hyper efficient and there are circumstances in which markets can be inefficient. That's more or less at the core, in my opinion. But let me keep going. So one of the things that Lowe argues is that what a lot of behavioral economists cite as a counterexample of economic rationality, right? So let's say, for example, loss aversion. What is loss aversion? Brent and I are very familiar with this because we see it in gambling all the time, mm-hmm. where a dollar gained and a dollar lost don't have the same amount of value because most people hate losing money much more than they enjoy making money. So losing $100 is more painful to people than making $100 is positive. We will even use this for specific decisions on how much we're going to bet in poker. That's how real this is. If you look at somebody and you know that they're up $240 and they've got a rack in their hands... You can bet $275 and know it's significantly more likely that they will fold than if you bet 200 So you make that choice based on whether you want them to call or not. It's kind of crazy. Right. Because for them, it's the difference between a winning session and a losing session. So yes. maybe if you if you do want them to call and you feel like they don't want to have a losing session, maybe you would normally bet 260 here, but you just bet 200 That way that person can walk away with that little profit. They're still up, quote unquote, in their mind. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's one of these behavioral tendencies. Another behavioral tendency that we have is, for example, overconfidence or overreaction. Maybe we see something happen and and we're trying to make up for lost time and we overdo it. Right. But here's the interesting thing. Lowe says, look, these aren't just these aren't just examples of us not being rational. But instead, he thinks that they're consistent with an evolutionary model of individuals adapting to a changing environment using simple heuristics. Remember, from our um, logical fallacies episode, heuristics is like 
ways of thinking or shortcuts or little models that we can have in our brain that help us make decisions. We, so, it was actually called Cognitive Biases 101. And thank you. definitely thank listen you. to that. If you're enjoying this episode and you haven't listened to that, go back and listen to that. It's very similar content. You will love that episode. Yeah, if you like this episode, that episode is very, very similar. So, okay, so he has this very interesting quote. Prices reflect as much information as dictated by the combination of environmental conditions and the number and nature of species in the economy. Now, by species, of course, he doesn't mean gorillas, whales, and chimpanzees. In the context of the market, species are the distinct groups of market participants, and each of them are going to behave in a common manner. So, for example, pension fund managers are going to behave a certain way, retail investors, uh, market makers, individual investors, head fund managers. So one way for us to think about this in the crypto space, as you guys know, is maybe developers act a certain way, miners act a different way, individual investors are going to act a certain way, exchanges are going to act a certain way. So you have all these different players, and even though they're all different, they belong to a wider group. And for Andrew Lowe in this theory, the adaptive market theory or hypothesis, because it's not proven yet, I guess, the, they make up the, the different species. So if multiple members of a single group are competing for scarce resources within a single market, then that market is very likely to become highly efficient. An example for this is something like a 10-year U.S. Treasury note where anybody, like all information is available, anybody can buy it, it's very highly competitive, so the edges are very small and the information is going to be reflected very quickly. But now let's say that you have a market where there's a small, a small number of species competing for what is considered abundant resources. All right, then that market is going to be much less efficient. So what's what's an example of a market like that? Well, oil paintings from the Middle Ages or from the Renaissance. There's a lot of them. There's a select group of people that invest in it. They're abundant. So there's much more room for the economic conditions. It's almost like the more competitive the environment is, the more diversified and the more scarce the resources are, the closer we get to total efficiency, if that makes sense. Okay, that that does make that makes a ton of sense, and it's part of the argument why a lot of these coins will have a cap that will never be uh, surpassed, like Bitcoin's twenty-one million supply. There, there's a, there's a little bit to that. I know we have we have issues with the deflationary aspect of a currency, but as far as an item to purchase, it I think it might fall into this uh, very specific amount is available. Right. And and another way to think this, you know, one of the things that came to mind is I feel like this would explain why on the surface there would appear to be so much more inefficiency in the cryptocurrency market than there appears to be in other markets. For one is so many cryptocurrencies are being developed and coming out in ICOs that we can say really between the scarce resources like a treasury bond or the abundant resources like an oil painting from the Renaissance, I would say this falls more towards abundant. There's all kinds of cryptos. There's all kinds of uh, supplies. Oh, I wasn't even... I wasn't thinking and, about it that way. I was thinking about it like inside the coin itself, but with there being so many coins available, that's a different thing to... Yeah, there, there could right, be infinite right. coins. Exactly. Within a coin itself, it's a scarce resource, right? But when all of these coins are being created and it's, it's like we're still figuring out what's good and what's bad. And there are less species competing. 
in our little crypto market than in the traditional stock market, obviously, uh, which has had point. hundreds of years to develop. So based on this theory, we should expect the cryptocurrency market to be less efficient. And what I really like about this, this, this last thing, you know, kind of what I teased at the beginning really brought it in for me. Market efficiency should not be evaluated in a vacuum. Instead, it is highly context dependent and dynamic. The degree of market efficiency is related to environmental factors, which characterized like the market ecology, the number of competitors in the, in the market, the magnitude of profit opportunities available, and the adaptability of the participants themselves. Long story short, it's not that markets are efficient or inefficient, is that markets and different markets exist within a different spectrum of efficiency. And some markets are more efficient than others. And to me, that makes a lot of sense, dude. Yeah, no, that's... That, that is a really awesome way of looking at it because, like I said, we uh, I've always been on one side of that argument while understanding that there is another side there and not understanding how to marry the two. So it is and, – and what's funny is you see like the dogmaticism on both sides if you are in, uh, you know, different forums or whatever, they're, they're the – Behavioral investment group will say that efficient market theory is stupid. Efficient market theorists will say the other, the opposite. And just like life, turns out it's very it's likely that the answer <laughs> is in the middle somewhere. And yeah, it's extremely complicated. Yeah. So, so we've we've taken all we just thrown all these theories at our listeners. They might just be here for the for the meat and bones. They might just be like, okay, so what the hell do I do? Like, what what are my <laughs> Okay, I guess all that sounds really cool, but how do I like just, you know, do that? How do I make that work? The next section here is notable strategies. So you're going to show us, tell us, I guess not show us because we're not on video. Uh, <laughs> you're going to tell us some of the strategies that we might be able to use to implement some of what we just learned and why. That's right. So I'm going to preface this section with a couple of things. Number one, we are not covering all investment strategies. There's a ton. Of course, you can go do your own research. Some of these we're just spending a very little bit of time on. This is more like to give you an idea of some of the strategies that have been created to try to either adjust to an efficient market or to try to exploit an inefficient market. And some of these strategies are actually meant to just try to control yourself. They're not really about the market as much as they are, okay, how do I control my behavioral inefficiencies? So some of them we're going to spend a little bit more time on. Some of them we're going to spend a little bit less time on. And if you ask me why, eh, because I was doing the research, so I got to decide which ones. So it is <laughs> <laughs> wow, that sounds really centralized, Kareem. Uh, it, it was it was really centralized. But okay, actually, here's another thing I'll say. I'm spending a little bit more time on the ones that I think you can apply to your life, all right, or to your investment right. strategy, however you wish to do so. So anyway, the main distinction that we have to make between investment strategies are active versus passive investment strategies. A passive investment strategy is one that focuses on minimizing the transaction cost that you're going to pay overall by reducing the amount of trades and purchases that you're doing. Because the passive investment strategy is leaning more towards the side of, hey, the market is pretty efficient. I'm not going to be able to exploit it. So let me control the one thing that I can control, how much I spend on transaction fees. All right. 
And active investment strategy is taking the opposite approach and saying, listen, I have the time, the knowledge. There are, after all, little inefficiencies that I can exploit. So an active investment strategy seeks to go after those. All right. So the most popular passive investment strategy, buy and hold, a.k.a. HODL. HODL. (laughs) HODL. This is a passive strategy that focuses on holding for a long period of time, and it's assuming that you can't beat the market, you can't time the market, so just reduce your fees, and in the long term, you're going to do well as long as you're picking good projects. I don't think we have to spend a lot of time on that unless you have any follow-ups or questions or anything like that. Nope, uh, nope. just one more reminder that a lot of these are going to be we're going to be talking about them in the legacy financial world again. We've said it before, but now that we're talking strategies, these are strategies that we're applying to the new asset class of cryptocurrency. We may find out in 10 years that some of these are completely not applicable. We don't know. So, right. But this is what we have, the best that we have for you now. <clears throat> right, right. And and for what it's worth, when I was going through this, I did try to select the ones that could apply somewhat right? Not the ones right. that don't really apply at all. So for example, one of the things that I don't want, we'll get to it in a little bit. Forget it. I'll, I'll mention okay, one cool. there. All right. So I'm going to compare buy and hold with an active investment strategy, which is momentum trading. Now, what momentum trading seeks to do is select an investment based on recent price performance under the assumption that the momentum is going to build. So you ever heard the term buy low, sell high? A momentum strategy would be like buy high, sell higher. These are people who believe that they they just want to ride that wave and time it uh, in such a way that they can benefit from the momentum that the stock has built, whether it's up or down. Mm -hmm. That would be Uh, also known as trend following sometimes uh, is referred to. There's a cool book called or not book, but stories. There's a couple of books written about them, but there there's a group called the Turtle Traders which were kind of like the original trend-following group that were akin to the MIT Blackjack team uh, from Vegas. So they're like, in fact, there were card counters in the group and they made like all this money by doing trend-following back in like the 70s, I think. Might have been the 80s. But it was was an interesting read. Again, don't know how applicable that strategy may be today. But... That group, at least based on the stories, was able to implement it and make a lot of a lot of money at the time. So okay, you interesting know what? read either way. Brent, I'm I'm gonna go ahead and take an opportunity for a little bit of a tangent because I think it's related. But you just saying that about them exploiting this in the past and not knowing how relevant it is today also made me think about some of the stories I've heard from the old timers that I've played with in the poker world. Like I've played in some games with guys who will tell me how in the 70s and 80s, they were crushing some of the sports books because there were so many uh, inefficiencies and opportunities for arbitrage where like different casinos or sports books were setting different lines. So they were able to put opposing bets and leave themselves in a situation where they're like guaranteed to win unless, you know, the team wins exactly by one point or something and how over time those inefficiencies have diminished. So in order to exploit, like I'm sure there are still inefficiencies in sports books, but they're much less prevalent than they used to be back in the seventies and eighties in part because of computers and everybody's sharing lines and things like that. Right. Exactly. As as more information becomes available, it turns out markets get more efficient. <laughs> so <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> it's a spectrum. <laughs> yep. 
All right. So now let's go back to another passive investment strategy. I kind of want to keep comparing them. So another passive investment strategy is similar to buy and hold, but it's got a little bit more to it. It's called indexing, which I'm sure you've heard of. Indexing is the strategy where you buy a small portion of all the shares in an index, such as let's say the S&P 500, allowing you to diversify your risk and just try to match the performance of the market. So that would be like if somebody said, you know what, I don't know which crop cryptocurrency is going to be the best. I have no clue. I'm just going to buy a little bit of like everything in the top 10 and rebalance every six months so that I have more or less everything in the top 10 and just go from there. That's an example of an index. And this is much more popular in the stock world because it's very low fees. And it was really also popularized by Warren Buffett, who gave the investment advice to the average person. Don't pay a mutual fund manager a bunch of money to go pick stocks for you. What you need is just something that matches the market, that automatically diversifies, and that you're paying as little fees as possible. So again, passive investment strategy. Yeah. So just to comment on indexing uh, and on indexes in general, I know there's a couple of cryptocurrency like the CCI 30 or the crypto 20. We're not really sure which one of those is going to end up being the, uh, you know, the the baseline. It's definitely interesting to me that the, that the Dow Jones industrial average ended up being the baseline because there's only 30 companies in that. And for the average person, they think the Dow Jones industrial average represents the entire market no matter what. And, you know, somebody who who hasn't done any market research thinks, no, the Dow is all that matters. It, it's everything. No, it's not. It's there's only it's only a few companies like there. I feel like something like the S&P 500 or even further down, like the Nasdaq are more representative of the economy as a whole. But it, it it's definitely a, an interesting like metagame thing that happened in legacy financial world so i'm wondering what will end up being the index for crypto i think right now it might even just be bitcoin but and and brent that's a great opportunity to mention the fact that that's that's like the broadest category index for example an S&P tracking fund or a dow jones tracking fund but you can actually use an indexing strategy within a sector or within a right. particular type so for example maybe you think oh i know that technology is going to crush it but i just don't i don't know whether i should pick between the 3d printing company or the nanotech company or google well there's probably technology indexing companies that just focus on technology stocks but again instead of buying Buying, you know, instead of saying, hey, let's find the top five technology stocks that you should invest in, the indexing strategy would say, hey, let's look at like the top 50 and just get a little bit of each. And then some mm -hmm. will fail and some will do great, but you'll get to benefit from the sector as a whole. So we might get that in crypto, where we might have general indexes in the future, but we might have indexes developed that are like security indexes or platform indexes that say, hey, we just want to get the major platforms. We're not going to buy Bitcoin. We're not going to buy uh, you know, Dash, but we're going to buy Neo, Ethereum, Icon, Cardano, mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. It could be anything. I do this myself a little bit. I have all of the coins that I know of that have a DAO because I, I appreciate the theory behind a decentralized autonomous organization but i don't know which one of them is going to end up being the one that matters so i have anytime i learn of a new coin that has a dao i tend to invest some in it as long as i don't hate something else about it there you go that dao index the dao industrial average <laughs> there we go all right so this would be considered an active investment strategy and it's the small cap strategy or the small company strategy so for example it is known this is a historical fact 
that on average, overall, medium cap companies tend to perform larger cap companies and small cap companies tend to outperform medium cap companies. So there are people who specialize in investing in smaller companies in order to try to get bigger returns. Now, I do want to point out that this isn't contradictory to efficient market hypothesis. Any chance you could tell me why there, Mr. Philbin? Right. No, this is we we teased this before. The reason for this is you're increasing your risk by going and getting lower capped uh lower cap stocks. They might just disappear. We, you know, you don't know. So the risk is so much higher. Yeah, bingo. And this is this is an easy one to translate to the cryptocurrency world. And actually, we have somebody very close to us that uses this kind of strategy. Mike, our third co-host, is much more interested, for example, in ICOs or very small projects. And part of the reason is because he understands that even though he's taking additional risk, that a lot of those ICOs might burn out, disappear, go broke. He also knows that an a young ICO can go 20, 30 times in value, whereas a mature project like Bitcoin or Neo or Cardano, the chance for, for that kind of growth just goes immediately down the moment they become a major cap currency, just like with big companies, right? Like Apple's going to grow, but it's not going to triple in value overnight. It's just almost impossible because of its size right. already. All right. So on to more investment strategies. This, I think, is the one that I was teasing earlier that is the one that probably applies to cryptocurrency the least just because it's so hard to determine what underlying values are. But right. in the traditional stock world is value versus growth are two different strategies. One type of investor, which was popularized by Benjamin Graham, uh, Warren Buffett's uh, tutor or t what's the word? Um, mentor. And a lot of people like Warren Buffett themselves who believe what you want to do is find really good companies that are undervalued, companies that for whatever reason are currently trading at less than they should be worth. There's a very famous example where uh, Buffett got to buy like a major newspaper. I don't remember which one it was, but at the time that he bought it, it was trading for less than the book value. And the book value, for those of you that don't know, is basically if the company goes out of business right now and they just sell all, their, all of their assets, what can they recover? Like literally like the computers, the building, the trucks, just sell everything that the company owns and see what you can recover. Well, the book value, just the assets that the company had were, tr were worth more than the market cap of the company at the time. So it was quote unquote clearly an undervalued company that hadn't gone broke and even if it just grew up to its book value, then it was going to outperform. So value is looking for undervalued stocks based on the fundamentals of the company themselves. The opposite strategy to that is growth, which is not looking so much at what the company itself is valued at, but what people perceive to be its potential for future growth in relation to the rest of the industry. For me, I don't know if this is a good example or not. I, I can't say that I'm a like super uh, knowledgeable stock investor, but that's kind of like Tesla. It's a company <laughs> that, was that exactly what I was going to say. 100% oh. <laughs> correct. <laughs> okay, cool. I was literally going to use that exact example. You didn't write it in here or anything. And we both had the same thought. Yeah, so Tesla is the perfect example of a company that really is trading way above its its earnings, its book value, or anything like that. But a lot of the investors believe that 
Tesla's going to grow massively at a, at a rapid rate in comparison to the rest of the industry because of autopilot, electric vehicles, all that kind of stuff. So growth is looking at the potential. This tends to focus a lot on technology and medicine and things like that. And value is just looking at what's going at a discount right now. And then another strategy that I put on here, we've briefly mentioned it before, I don't have a lot to say about it, but it's technical analysis, which is can be considered the opposite of fundamental analysis. Because while fundamental analysis is looking at statistics specific to the company, for example, their earnings, their asset value, their revenue stream, their cash on hand, their technical board, analysis, their board members, their their CEO, right. like right, the quality of their management. Great point, Brent. Um, it's not always just numbers. It could be other things. Uh, technical analysis is kind of looking at the opposite and focusing on the psychology of the market. They're trying to look at charts and recognize recent price patterns or trends, um, which generate what are called indicators. And then those indicators are used to try to predict future patterns and trends. We've had plenty of discussions about whether or not it works or doesn't. The bottom line is Brent and I aren't huge on it, but... I mean, there are clearly people who have been very successful with it. It's it's hard to tell exactly how useful it is. Um, I'm comfortable saying that the majority of people using uh, technical analysis are probably wasting their time, but I am not comfortable enough to say that there's no value in technical analysis, you know, especially without having more depth of knowledge. Yeah, I'm I'm interested to know like exactly what point this this may create a return for somebody. I again, it's so from a completely theoretical standpoint, the information that you're getting to decide on your technical analysis move should all be able to be programmed into a computer. There's no real, like, you know, as far as we know, there's no real very critical thinking. It's it's like, okay, I'm looking at this chart. Here are the supports. Here are the resistances. And here are the different patterns that I've learned how to spot and I believe that there is a percentage chance that based on this support and this resistance and this pattern that the price will go in this direction based on what I've seen. And I don't understand how a human brain is capable of dissecting that information better than a computer that somebody's programmed. That's why I have a hard time believing that technical analysis works because everyone who's ever explained it to me has never given me a piece of information that I could not program into a computer. Mm. That's really interesting. But let me ask you a question just to play devil's advocate. And I, let me be very clear. I'm almost 100% with you on this. I'm just playing devil's advocate. Based on what you just said, if you asked me to put into words or explain why it's so easy for a human to walk or to be able to see street signs or to decipher a captcha compared to a computer, I really wouldn't be able to tell you exactly why those inputs are so hard to process for a computer in comparison to, you know, a computer can calculate the square root of an imaginary number in a fraction of a second, and we could never dream of doing that or something like that, right? So what if what if some of the pattern recognition abilities of the human brain, we can't contextualize yet, but maybe a person looking at the chart can spot something in the same way that it can decipher a captcha, even if we can't quite tell why an algorithm couldn't. The only thing I can, I can kind of see here is if deciphering those charts 
combined with the understanding of the emotion behind them somehow results right. in better decision making. So if I can see, I, I, I don't know, cup and handle, I, I don't know what they are. I just know people have talked about them. Right, I don't, right. uh, mostly my technical analysis is looking at like the dragon where like the <laughs> dragon is on there and it's like, oh yeah, it's going up. So yeah. <laughs> um, let's say they've seen a cup and handle, but compared with the fact that they know that it's Tron and the group is more likely to just be culty and the emotion is, you know, Justin Sun tweeted. So even though Justin Sun tweeted something that was completely meaningless, now I have to interpret this as as news. So I have to shift this cup and handle based on positive news, even though no real positive news has come out that I can interpret as such because I understand the underlying motions behind that right. group. I, I, under, I understand Maybe. what you're saying. You're basically but that's a, saying it's a stretch. Right. Like in a vacuum, the computer can see an uptick or a downtick or a pattern, but not understand like any kind of real world information to grasp onto and correlate and make a decision. Whereas the human can say, oh, this must be because of that article uh, or whatever. So I, I, I guess that makes sense. And then also you can be in a situation where you're human and Verge gets hacked and then you go see the price and it goes up and, and then you malfunction. Error for four. Your brain just explodes. <laughs> Are you there? Did I lose you, Brent? All right, so weird thing happened. Our recording just kind of like pooped out, and we were talking about the 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 possible technical analysis factors that might make it work, being emotions. I don't remember where we left left off on that thought, but humans being able to determine how other humans are acting is probably important. Anyway, hopefully that makes sense. Uh, we're gonna move on from technical analysis because we've done a lot of talking about it on different episodes of the podcast, but it was important to mention it inside of this. Theory. So here we are. Uh, we're somewhere around 50 minutes into the episode, and <laughs> we're going to get to the original title of this episode, which is Dollar Cost Averaging. So, Kareem, let's get into it. Give us Dollar oh, Cost yeah. Averaging. Dollar Cost Averaging. That's what the episode was supposed to be about, huh? All right. <laughs> yeah, so... Dollar cost averaging, right off the bat, one of the things that I want to mention is that I think you and I have been using the term incorrectly a little bit. There was a misunderstanding. We think of dollar cost averaging as just the fixed investment over time. But really, dollar cost averaging is used as a comparison to lump sum investing. So the idea is if you have a ton of money, like let's just say you have an inheritance or you win a little lottery or we win a poker tournament and all of a sudden you have 20 grand to invest, your options are to either put in the 20 grand or to spread it out over time through a dollar cost averaging. The idea of just putting some of your paycheck aside so you can invest it as you get it is really not, you can do it in a dollar cost averaging way However, it really is just periodic investment. It's just investing your money as soon as you have it, the money that you can afford to invest. So that's a very small distinction that it's worth mentioning because I'm going to say a few negative things about dollar cost averaging here. It's generally a viable strategy, but most of the negative things that I have to say about dollar cost averaging are in comparison to lump sum investment, assuming you have the money all on hand ready to go. Right. Does that make sense? <clears throat> okay. So dollar cost averaging, to get to it, is a strategy where investors place a fixed dollar amount into whatever investment vehicle, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever. And they do it in a recurring schedule. Again, it's a fixed dollar amount. 
What's cool about dollar cost averaging? Well, you're automatically buying more shares when the price is low and fewer shares when the prices rise. So for example, let's say that I wanted to buy NEO, right? But I'm always buying $100 no matter what. Well, that means that if the price of NEO goes to $200, I'm only going to buy a half a NEO because I'm still only putting in 100. So I'm buying less NEO. But if the price of NEO goes to $50 because there's a crash, I'm still buying $100. So I'm buying two NEO. So automatically, based on the price fluctuations, you're going to buy more shares when the price is low and less shares when the prices go up. That means that you don't have to pay as much attention to market fluctuations and you benefit yourself from any like temporary bargains that come along. What you and I do, Brent, has more to do with periodic investing. That's when you, uh, you, know, you have a percentage of your paycheck, you're putting it in immediately. With dollar cost averaging, you're intentionally dividing the amount of money you could invest right now in order to not hit the market fluctuations. So let's say that we had 20 grand. Maybe you're afraid that crypto is going to go down, but you know that you should still invest it. Instead of putting all the money at once, you decide that I'm just going to put in $1,000 a month over 20 months. That way I can catch all of the average prices. Ultimately, that is really going to outperform in a down market. But in general, stock markets, and I don't know if we could say this about crypto yet. I mean, we probably could. But in general, the, the markets move up over time. So ultimately, on average, not in every instance, dollar cost averaging is going to give a less of a reward, a lower return on investment than lump sum investment. Because in the lump sum, you had all your money in at once growing for a longer period of time. And then it gets even more complicated because let's say that a stock pays a dividend. Then it becomes even worse to do dollar cost averaging because of all the time that you could have gotten paid dividends. So when you compare dollar cost averaging to lump sum investment, in a down market, dollar cost averaging outperforms. But if you're looking at stocks with a dividend, even in a down market, lump sum is going to outperform dollar cost averaging. Um, and there's That's definitely a interesting. I, I've never thought about my. I, you're right. I've always thought dollar cost averaging is just if I can afford hundred dollars a week, that's what I'm putting in, and I'm dollar cost averaging it in based on you know our percentage distribution. So I I hadn't really thought of it versus twelve hundred, right, say fifty two hundred dollars for the year or whatever. Right. What you're really doing is as soon as you have available funds for investment, you're immediately put them putting them into your investment vehicles. That's actually not really you're not holding any money back with the intention of averaging out the cost of your shares. Does that make sense? Okay. So right. we're really doing more of a periodic investment. So um, there, there's been a couple of books like in, uh, there, was a, there was a big paper in 1979 by George Constantinides. I should have probably made you pronounce that. Uh, it was called a, a Note on the Suboptimality of Dollar Cost averaging. And there was also a very famous simulation. Think of it like multiple spreadsheet um, across many different markets that were done by Michael Rosef. And he says lump sum investing versus dollar cost averaging. He runs a bunch of simulations. And in basically every simulation, the lump sum investment outperforms the dollar cost averaging. However, dollar cost averaging is not just a mathematical theory. It's also a psychological or behavioral strategy, right? So one of the things that might happen is that 
sometimes the fear of loss might deter an investor from buying stocks altogether, right? This is the loss aversion we were talking about before, and it's been well documented in something called prospect theory, uh, uh, part of a theory in behavioral economics that describes your choices between alternatives. So dollar cost averaging overcomes loss aversion in a frame that highlights gains and obscures losses because you could think about, okay, if the price dropped, at least I'm getting more shares. Let's say a good example for that would have been somebody who really got into crypto in January and they just saw this big bubble and it blew up and they're like, all right, I want to get into crypto, but the markets have been tanking. That person is worried that they're just going to keep on tanking, right? Investing is still better than not investing. So, if that person is either not going to put in the money or they say, you know what, just in case it goes down, I'm only going to put in a thousand a month, right? That strategy of putting a thousand a month, even though it's not as good as having put in the 20K right off the bat, it's still better than not having invested because you were afraid that the market was go down. So Eugene Fama, the guy that we said uh, developed the efficient market hypothesis, puts it this way. He says, dollar cost averaging may give you a better investment experience, but not a better investment performance. Maybe you're afraid uh, that the market's going to drop too much. So ultimately, people using dollar cost averaging will at least get their money in the market in a consistent way where they don't have to worry about market fluctuations, where they don't have to worry about not investing, where they don't have to worry about all kinds of things. And it's still a good behavioral strategy to get you to invest. One word of caution, however, a lot of people do dollar cost averaging and then they stop when there's a large drop in the market which is the biggest mistake you could possibly do because it eliminates the main benefit of dollar cost averaging. The main benefit of dollar cost averaging is that you're going to buy more shares when prices are low because you're investing the same amount. If the market tanks and now you decide that you don't want to buy, you don't want to put in your amount, then you've doubly screwed yourself because you didn't invest early on and now you're not capitalizing on the one edge that dollar cost averaging does have. Right. So I'm wondering now that now that we're going over that I completely and I've read a lot of books. I wonder if I just read this and and messed up the exact theory behind it. But the way I always understood dollar cost averaging was: let's say you decide you want your portfolio, and I'm going to use uh, traditional. Nah, now you know what? Let's use crypto. Let's say you decide you want your portfolio to be 50% Bitcoin, 25% Ethereum, 25% Neo, and you. You're investing at thousand dollars a month, so you put in the first thousand five hundred two fifty two fifty, and then the next month you need to bring your portfolio back into balance with those percentages. So if your portfolio is now sixty twenty twenty, you're going to be investing more in those that are the twenty percent than you will in the sixty percent comparatively to bring it back to fifty twenty five twenty five. So I always that was my that was. Maybe it's maybe it's both. I don't know, but I thought that was that's actually average. no. So that is a strategy con- called rebalancing or balancing, and that that is where you're specifically targeting your investments in order to maintain a particular ratio. And actually, when it comes to risk, is the preferred method for big time investment. A lot of people, you know, like if you go to a you know, uh, a financial advisor, you're getting a well-designed portfolio or whatever, usually it's looking at risk 
predetermining the amount of risk you can take, and then structuring your portfolio in such a way that it's balanced. And then if there's an imbalance, like let's say, for example, crypto was only supposed to be 5% of your portfolio, but now all of a sudden, because Bitcoin blew up, it's 20% of your portfolio. Well, then that person might actively choose to buy more stocks or buy more bonds in order for those asset classes to make up a bigger percentage of their portfolio. That strategy is called rebalancing. Oh, okay. So so what I'm really doing is lump sum investing with rebalancing. Periodic when, investment. When I buy my, yeah. 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 When I buy my when I buy my stocks and or cryptos, although crypto I'm a lot more random than I am on stocks, but the <laughs> crypto I'm just like, yep, I've got three hundred dollars, let's go. <laughs> I, you know, I'm adding it. Now here's the interesting part too, and this is one of the things that started kicking me down the rabbit hole. I found another investment strategy that was developed after dollar cost averaging, which is actually superior but harder to stick to for a couple of reasons. But when I Ooh. say it's superior, it's it's superior in almost every way from a return perspective. So it hasn't been as long as I mentioned. It's called value averaging. And it came around in 1988 by a guy named Michael Edelson in a 1988 journal entry. What value averaging is, is the idea that you as an investor focus on a fixed growth rate for your portfolio. And you adjust your purchases or your investments in order to maintain that growth. Let's say, for example, that I buy $1,000 worth of cryptocurrency. And my goal, my, my investment goal is for that to grow $200 by $200 every month. That means that by the end of January, I want to have $1,200 in there. And by the end of February, I want to have $1,400 in there, and by et cetera, et cetera, Right. So in theory, this is starting to look like dollar cost averaging. All I have to do is add $200 in there to make sure I do that. But you focused on your goal instead of focusing on the market. So if the market falls in value, if your portfolio falls in value, you make a larger contribution. And if it booms, you invest less, even to the point of selling, right? So here's what value averaging says. Let's say, for example, that I have $1,000, right? My first month, I want to get to $1,200. Well, my portfolio goes from $1,000 to $1,050. Well, now, that next month, I only have to put in $150. And now, after I put in my deposit, I have my $1,200 goal. Perfect. Then, my goal for the next month is to be at $1,400. Well, my portfolio actually fell by $100. I only have $1,100. Well, that means that my next contribution will be $300. So I'm adjusting my contribution in order to make my portfolio look the same. Here's what's really interesting. Not the same, sorry. In order to have my portfolio meet my goal. What's really interesting, though, is that it really forces you to be aggressive when shares are discounted and cheap because you're buying more, not just like in dollar cost averaging. Basically, in dollar cost averaging, you're buying more when the, when the shares are cheaper by default. But here- Right, you're you just really, buying more physical shares. Right. You're but not here, buying you're, more value. You're not only adding more shares, you're putting in more money because you want to get to that actual value. And I was looking at some of the spreadsheets of how value averaging performs in comparison to dollar cost averaging, and the differences were significant. Like you invest less money and you end up getting higher returns. And they 
you know, the true value averaging method even has people selling off. So like, let's say that my portfolio started out with a thousand and I was like, okay, at the end of next month, I want to have 1200 and then Bitcoin just like blew up and went to two grand. According to this strategy, I would just sell $800 worth of Bitcoin. So I have my 1200 and now I have $800 that I can use if the market dips. So the I main think that would have worked out for some people very well oh, in January. That would have worked out really well. So the main goal of value averaging is to acquire more shares when the prices are falling and to get fewer shares when the prices are rising, right? And again, this exacerbates the effect that you see in dollar cost averaging. Several independent multi-year studies have shown that this significantly outperforms. However, it's more complex. It requires active management. And I want to emphasize, Brent, you know this better than everybody, time isn't free. So when you need to invest more right. time into something, that's that's a form of a cost. That's time, effort that you could be doing something else. So it's active management. And here's the biggest problem, that sometimes it's going to require very large additions of capital. And the more that your portfolio grows, the harder that it'll be to maintain that. So in the example I gave, okay, I have $1,000. I want to get to 1200 right? So if it falls to 900, okay, I got to add 300. Okay. But what happens when your portfolio is 120,000 and your goal right, for next like 15 years down the line? Exactly. And all of a sudden and your portfolio drops by 10%. Decrease. Bingo. Are you really going to be able to just deposit a 30 K check? So this is kind of a martingale phenomenon, as I mentioned to you at the beginning of this episode, where it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to have an infinite bankroll, but this isn't necessarily super easy to um, to like. <laughs> this isn't super easy to match. All right, now Brent just texted me here. Can I tell your story? I actually believe that we've told the story on the podcast before, but you can tell it. I don't remember. have we. Yeah, well, we it's have. super applicable because you're talking about Martingale. So yeah, I want to f- I, I want to explain kind of like what this is. As long and as you give me justice, don't 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 make it seem. Like, <laughs> sometimes you retell stories, you make it. <laughs> but go on. Feel free to correct me. So this is a little little fun story about Kareem. This is uh, this is like 2005, maybe. So we're talking 13 years ago. That um, you know, I'm Kareem 15 just, and I'm like in. Yeah, no, he was playing in our. You know, I'm not even gonna say it's on the air, but <laughs> Kareem started playing poker at like age 16. I remember asking him for his ID because he looked the same. He had this massive beard, no hair, and he looked exactly the same as he does now. And so far, all true. He gives me a call one day and he's like, hey, I think I figured it out. I I found a great business plan where we can make a bunch of money. He's like, all we have to do is go to these online casinos and we can bet on their roulette as a as a 50 50. And if we lose, we just double our bet and then eventually we'll win. And then we'll just make whatever the original bet was so we can start with a dollar. So basically, we'll just double our bet until we make that dollar back. Yeah. And just just to clarify to people, the theory goes, let's say I bet $5. If I win, I keep $5 and I just bet $5 again, right? Let's say I lose the $5. If I bet $10, I'm down five. But if I win that $10 bet, I'm going to be up five. Let's say I lose the $10. I'm now down 15, right? Because I bet five, lost, bet 10, lost. Well, now I bet double, which is 20. And if I win $20, I'll still make $5. So the idea is you just, if you lose, you just keep doubling your bet until you win. And then you reset back to the smaller bet and you could basically print money in right. theory. 
Yeah, in theory. So luckily, I had actually looked this up before because I think at a similar age, one of my friends said the same thing. And here's what, if you look this up, if you look up the um, the gambler's fallacy or the Martingale, Martingale. Martingale. system. It's not uh, the gambler's fallacy. I said the same thing last time we covered this. They're different. Anyway, the, the graphs go like straight, very slowly up. And they're all again until they hit a point where the the negative is so low that it makes the up look like a straight line and it's all the way at the bottom of the graph. So there is a point in every system, in every Martingale system, that there's catastrophic failure because eventually you're going to flip 18 heads in a row and you're not going to have enough money to bet or there's going to be a limit on the casino or there's some reason you're not going to have enough of a bankroll to make the next bet that you need to make your money back. So it's hard to wrap your head around this because there can't be infinite heads in a row. Like eventually a coin is going to land tails, right? Well, so the the theory is if you have an infinite bankroll, if you have an infinite amount of money, you will always make money this way by doubling your bet if you have an infinite amount of money. But that also doesn't work because infinity plus infin- plus any number is still infinity. So you do not increase your money because you already have infinity. So there is no way to guarantee a return on this kind of system. Unless, this is one random thought experiment I did, if I'm playing with you, you're the house and I'm the player, and we're playing on credit, and I have unlimited credit, and you can't quit at any point, then I can guarantee get money from you. But that is the only scenario that it would work. And and by the way, the, the exponential nature of it makes it so that, you know, because... Because Brent's right, right? You're not gonna hit, uh, you're not gonna hit tails every time, you know, for infinity. You're not gonna lose infinity times in a row. But when you're doubling the bet every time, it only takes like 12, 13, 14 losses in a row, and you're already betting like a hundred thousand dollars to try to win your five dollars back. So, yeah. so it it goes crazy. So that's what we're talking about when we say this may have like a little bit of a martingale property. We're not right. we're not Which saying it, that this is guaranteed to lose. But it's important. No, that, not at all. To not at all. And this experiment. this tactic actually works. And whereas the coin flip is 50-50, the markets should and overall keep growing. But the bottom line here is that as you develop this strategy, you're going to reach a point where you might need a ridiculous amount of cash inflow to maintain it. Because, you know, like we said, if you have $100,000 and there's a a 10k uh, 10% downswing well in order to match your thing for the next month you need to put in $11,000 if you have them that's great because you just benefited from a 10% drop in the market and got some cheap shares but who's going to have 10k lying around and what happens when that portfolio's half a million dollars you know it's, it's, it just gets more and more complicated however the overall idea I had not been exposed to it. It's very interesting. It is complex. It requires active management. But here's what I like about this. It's one of the few strategies that I found that have very little to do with timing the market. It's actually a self-contained strategy. You have you have your portfolio, you have your growth rate, and then you're really just reacting to what the market does in such a way that you're benefiting from downswings and and not going too crazy on upswings. So it's a behavioral strategy as well as a mathematical strategy like DC, like dollar cost averaging is in the sense that it's containing you from making bad decisions where our tendency is to not want to buy when markets are low or you know try to ride the wave when everybody's buying a bunch. 
So it was just really interesting, and I and I hadn't encountered it before. Yeah, I, I, in crypto, that could have been. Think about that. Like you could have, you could have been down 50 percent if you were starting this in like 2013. You're just like, well, I got to put in a million dollars. Whoops. Sorry, I bought a Lambo. Yeah. Well, but then again, if you had been following the strategy and capitalizing on all those gains, yeah, you'd, you'd be crushing it too. Because yeah. when your portfolio doubled, you literally sold like, you know, let's say 15K worth of Bitcoin. And then three months later, it's down to 30% of its price and you're putting in 15K. Like, I mean, this definitely brings down your average share cost if you can pull it off properly. Yeah. All right. And then there's one more strategy that I found that's worth discussing a little bit. It's called buying only the dip. Sounds a little idealistic. Obviously, just buy the dip. Um, buy the dip, kick. Bam. <laughs> buy, the, buy the fucking dip. That's crypto. So Boom. here you have to follow prices pretty closely. Um, what's really important for buying the dip is that you have to have a reasonable expectation of how big of a magnitude drop you are expecting because it's hard to tell when there's the dip. Is a 5% drop a dip? Is it 10%? Obviously, when you're looking at Bitcoin, we can't possibly say that a 2 or 3% drop is a is a dip because with Bitcoin, a 2 or 3% drop is a good morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> that's, just, that's just how Bitcoin starts the day in either direction. It means nothing, which is why when you're looking at stocks or when you're looking at cryptocurrencies, the really um, important thing to consider if you're trying to implement a buy only the dip strategy is that different stocks and different asset classes have different volatility ranges. They move differently. A 3% drop for some stocks is massive. And a 20% drop for some asset classes isn't that massive. So that's why people that use this are going to use something called the beta marker. So beta is the measure of the volatility of an asset class, of a, let's say a stock, in comparison to the overall market. So just as an example, just a quick example, let's say that Apple has a beta of 1.5. That means that Apple's volatility is on average one is 1.5 times as much as the rest of the market. So if the market goes down by 2%, Apple should go down by 3%, and it's more or less the same. Does that make sense? Right. Or okay. it should go up. It just it just gives you an idea of how the volatility relates to the rest of the market. So if you are trying to buy the dip, you need to be aware of that so that you have a well-defined idea of what is the dip. Now, I'm adding this as a little blurb here just to give an opportunity to explain beta and to make sure that when you're looking at things like this, you factor in probability, I mean, um, volatility ranges and things like that. But I wouldn't know what a dip is. I wouldn't even know how to define a proper dip. So for me personally, something like dollar cost averaging or value averaging is much easier to follow than just quote unquote buying the dip just because it's so hard to establish what is a good dip, what are the right betas, you know, how do they relate, what's the right volatility. It's just hard to tell, you know. Yeah, so that's more or less it for the investment strategies. Uh, you know, I know I know we covered a couple. <laughs> I had two parting notes that I thought, you know, just general like pieces of wisdom and remember we're not financial uh, advisors, we're just idiots. But out of all the research and all the investment strategies, a couple of things don't overwhelm yourself. And I think that these are two very relevant points. One is just a fact. There's been very few instances in our entire history where the overall stock market didn't increase over a 10-year period. And there has never been 
a 15-year period in which the overall market didn't increase, ever. You can't find a 15-year period stretch of time where the market didn't go up. So why do I say that? Because all of these strategies aside and all of these hypotheses and theories aside, what you should remember is time in the market beats timing the market. Just invest, invest, especially if you're young, thinking about your future, you know, you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, any age, whatever vehicle, even if it's not cryptocurrency, investment is the true path to wealth. That has been beyond proven in a capitalist society. So even if it's just a little bit at a time, don't be overwhelmed by these strategies. It's better to invest than anything else. It's just like the gym. It doesn't matter what's the best technique or whether, you know, oh, how do you increase hypertrophy and all this stuff? It doesn't matter. If you go to yeah. the gym four days a week, you're better off than somebody that doesn't go to the gym. And who hasn't at least once in their life wondered, how do you increase hypertrophy? I know every... <laughs> couple of days that is forefront on my mind <laughs> well fair enough we'll, All right, we'll have then, a whole other podcast about hypertrophy sometime soon well <laughs> so, some of the gym goers might have thought about it before brent <laughs> and i just said uh, i think about it all the time all right and then the last one i i stumbled across this little warren buffett quote doesn't really relate to any particular strategy but i just think it's worth it and it reflects my personal investment strategy when it comes to cryptocurrencies and Warren Buffett says, it is far better to buy a wonderful business at a fair price than to buy a fair business at a wonderful price. And I truly, truly believe in that, whether you're looking at the stock market or whether you're looking at cryptocurrencies, and it's not my place to tell you which are the cryptocurrencies that are good or not, but I think more so than trying to find the right discount and trying to eke out an inefficiency and all these little things, what you really should do is find very, very good companies or projects that you believe in because they're solid, because they have good management, because they have good futures, and then put your money to work behind them. That's my personal opinion, and that's a Warren Buffett quote. So, you know, can't even dispute it. And Warren Buffett historically has been very pro-crypto, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. He's one of our biggest fans. Yeah. Interestingly, you know, Warren Buffett, I, I feel like he was ahead of his time with a lot of what he was doing with the stock markets, but he's he's old now and he doesn't see a new technology as something that he's interested in. So, and, and it's not a company either. So, you're not buying shares of the Bitcoin company. You're, it's very, very different space. So, we try to dissect these projects and we decide on the ones that we like based on our dissection and then we make purchases based on that. But is our dissection right? I don't know. It's so difficult. So take all of these strategies and do what you will with them. Look up more about them. We're going to have a lot of different resources in the show notes for you. Yeah, there's lots of links, lots of articles that you can look at that are looking at the positives and negatives of a lot of these strategies. Um, you know, and with somebody like Warren Buffett, hey, listen, he famously has said that he doesn't invest in things that he doesn't understand. I don't think anybody in crypto should take it personally that he's not interested in crypto. And also, uh, even though... You and I probably feel that Buffett is not seeing the vision of cryptocurrency, uh, and he's definitely missing some pieces. I also think that the massive, massive price fluctuations that we've seen over the past six months show that when Warren Buffett looked at the crypto market and said, 
that's just a bunch of craziness. He wasn't completely wrong. You know what I mean? Right. So everything with a grain of salt, everything with some subtlety. And yeah, you know, try to educate yourself as much as possible. But again, I can't emphasize it enough. Don't overwhelm yourself with information. At the end of the day, just be frugal, be judicious about your investments, and you should come out on top. That is a very entertaining statement you just said there, because that's not advice at all. None of this has been advice. This is uh, yeah, that's right. entertainment purposes only. Please understand that all of your investments have massive inherent risk, no matter how safe they sound. So thanks for joining us on this random walk down podcasting lane. Oh, my man. With two idiots or fools. We'll go with fools. <laughs> yeah, fool. I think fools is appropriate. Fools would have been better because, that, like, if we didn't start calling ourselves idiots, like the the greater fool theory. Let's go, let's go. All yeah. right. Oh, that's so, perfect. Let's just change it. Listen, let's just do it from now on. Let's just start calling ourselves fools. I think it's more appropriate. Plus, it has this kind of right. like Joker undertone to it that totally fits you. Well, we are fools, so that's it. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna sign us off now. I've been here with our pseudo expert on the. <laughs> topic that was researched kareem baruke i'm brent philbin mike lockie was trying to win a poker tournament and <laughs> <laughs> he didn't succeed but that's why he wasn't with us today so uh please join any one of our cool little communities we're even throwing some stuff on youtube now main community that you can interact with us is discord there's always a button on the website or in the show notes to join the discord discord is the best chat app that i've ever seen and our flagships should also be coming out on YouTube from now on. So if you end up wanting to see our faces, go on there. So that's it. I'm si- I, that was a long sign off, but please join us in any way you can. The fact that there are people reaching out to us every day saying, wow, like I learned so much from you guys. I never would have thought that I was helping teach people anything. So no, yeah, that's awesome. And if you have any ideas for topics that you want to cover like this, you know, it's we try to do stuff that's not just always crypto related or always a project, but looking at the bigger picture, uh, like our, what was it called? The uh, Not fallacies, but cognitive biases. And now we have this. So if yes. you think of anything that would be fun to cover that you think would be good for the audience, let us know. Get on that Discord. Hit us up. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. That's it. We're out of here. Crypto Basic longest outro of all time we'll see you later we out